Jalen and Jacoby, the After Show is proudly presented by State Farm. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And now, Jalen and Jacoby. You're watching the Jalen and Jacoby After Show presented by State Farm. Mm. And Jalen, the there was something day. that happened during episode six that I wanted to talk to you about because you were very familiar with one particular team that was featured in episode six, and that is the New York Knickerbockers with Oakley. And Ewing and Starks. Why? Well, why give me the twenty second timeout? Why give Can me that? Darrell Rivas make an appearance real no. quick on this. No, great docu series. If you so don't know, Jalen never listens to or talks about what I want him to talk about. So there's a character named Darrell Rivas that derails the show every single time. Go ahead, Darrell. So I got to ask you two questions. What is your favorite era of hip hop? Uh, Mid nineties. What is your favorite era? Of basketball, uh, late eighties, I would say. Ooh, you mean when the Pistons won twice? Well, we had Isaiah and Larry and Magic and Jordan all in the same league at the same time, sort of close to the peak of their powers. Yes. The reason why I asked because once it got to the nineties, then the mid nineties, it was all MJ everything. You know, he was rolling the dice, he was snatching up everybody's money, and it wasn't even close, Jacoby. He was not playing around with the rest of the league for a guy who became the best player in the 80s and the greatest player in the 90s. So, Jalen, I mentioned up the Knicks because they were featured in this episode, and the Knicks team famously never made it over the hump past Michael Jordan. Also, you played against on your Pacer team at this time. What did you think about this particular Knicks team and how they played against Michael Jordan? <laughs> so as a fan of the game, Jacobs, the, the funniest thing is watching the intelligent former player who's tough as nails, a game changer in the NBA, and Pat Riley, who ushered in the Showtime offense, and played against the Pistons, actually adopting their style of play, mm. not only with the Knicks, but with the Heat as well, with two separate teams in order to play against the Bulls. So it was something that at that point the league felt like if we're going to elevate Michael Jordan and the stars of our league, we can't have them getting flagrant foul. And that's when the game started to change from not being some uh, uh, where you can physically intimidate your opponent. It was, it, it, it was, it was, a, it was a great um, understanding for those who weren't there to see how it was Ewing and Oakley, Mason, like they're big and physical up front and tough. And so starts in the backcourt going baseline, freaking it with the left, the iconic Nick play. And so those were those were like 80, 90 at best rock fight point games that uh the Bulls showed that they can win any style, including when MJ went to go play baseball, except Hugh Hollins, Lay Foul, well Scotty Pippen. Huber Davis. There's a lot to discuss, Jalen Rose, in regards to episode six, especially not only did he go to play baseball, he also went to play cards during that Knicks season, <laughs> and his gambling came into question. And there was the Jordan wow. Rules book, which caused tension in the locker room. And to explore all those storylines and much more, we're going to bring in the director of The Last Dance, Jason Ayer. 
Just like we saw the Bulls when they went from our friend and colleague, Doug Collins, to Phil Jackson. With real guidance and the right coach, NBA teams go from good to great. Just like real help from your State Farm agent can make all the difference in protecting what matters most. Jalen, who are some of the greatest coaches in NBA history off the top of your head? Some of the greatest coaches in NBA history, you start the early days, you have to mention Red Arback. As you fast forward that to the 80s, you got to think about Pat Riley. Shout to KC Jones as a member of the Celtics head coaching staff, Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs, the work that he's done there, Doc Rivers, what he's done with the Celtics and the Clippers. There have been some really influential coaches, Phil Jackson winning 11 championships with the Bulls and then going on to the Los Angeles Lakers. And my guy, Larry Legend. That's right, I said it. The only player to win MVP, Executive of the Year, and Coach of the Year. I don't know if that'll ever be done again. Well, it will never be done again. And you also will shout out Larry Burks. He gave you a big contract, Jalen. Yes. Big contract. That's why yes. he is mentioned as one of the greatest yes. coaches of all time. And just like those coaches took their teams to the next level, a State Farm agent can do the same for you. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining your home and auto insurance and get a teammate who can help guide you through whatever life throws your way. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're all in the same boat, stuck in our homes during a quarantine, joining our friends on Zoom calls. We all know there's a lot going on right now in the world, and we're all shopping online as we stay at home. I just saw that AT&T started doing two really helpful things for those who want to buy a new phone or device online. They're offering fast, free, no-contact delivery and curbside pickup so that online shopping is simple and safe as possible. On top of that, they have a flexible return policy so you can shop at ease. You can visit att.com to learn how to shop online from the safety of your home 24-7. Subjects to change. Restrictions apply. As we always do at this time, it is time to bring in the director of The Last Dance, wow. Jason Ayer. Jason, wow. I'm going to start this with where <laughs> you started episode six. Because unlike oh, the man. other episodes, this one started sort of like on a somber note. Sort of like there was no big music open. It was sort of like you set the tone for an episode. It was a, it was a little foreshadowing for what was to come. What was the decision making behind the start of episode six? Nina Kerstich is our archival producer, and she did the same job for uh, the OJ documentary and many other documentaries. She's literally the best person in the world uh, at getting archival footage, at, at, at unturning every single stone to get the best footage possible. And she came to me early in the process. Um, she's made her own films, too, so she knows how to direct and produce and do all that. She came to me early in the process uh, with the idea that we would start the entire series out with Michael repeating, having to repeat over and over how difficult it was to be Michael Jordan. And mm. just those the cut and take wow. two, cut, take three. Uh, she had the idea that we were going to, that was going to be our clarion call at the top of this series to say like this, this is how we're getting inside the mind of how difficult it is to be this guy and how, um, how it was to navigate that kind of fame. I love, I thought it was a brilliant idea. I didn't want to do it right off the top of the series. Um, because you're signaling then that this is an examination into, you know, the life of Michael Jordan and fame and, and what it does to you. But five and six, we're very much designed to be 
this is the ride to the top of, of how famous you can be and winning back-to-back titles and going for your third uh, was, was five. And then the, the toll of that fame, the price of that success and the pressure that you put on yourself and the pressure that people outside put on you to continue to be perfect and the impossibility of perfection. That's what we wanted to examine in episode six. So it was kind of the, the up and the down of that roller coaster. And Nina's idea, I thought, would work perfectly for the top of six, and, and we used it there. I got to know Sam Smith while I was in the league, seasoned veteran at what he does. He wrote a book during that period of time called The Jordan Rules. Did it cause any friction within the locker room? Of course, because uh, a lot of fingers were being pointed as to who was the source for the material here. Um you know, Michael had 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 taken uh, guys like Horace and Scotty under his wing and transformed them from immature kids who didn't know how to win into into proven winners. Um, and when that book came out, you know, Krause tells the story or, or they tell the story of Krause pulling Jerry Krause, into, pulling uh, Phil Jackson into his office and dog earing the pages and saying, who said this? Who said this? Who said this? There were factions, and this is this is part of Michael's decision to leave, and this is part of what we discussed, I think, last week, Pat Riley's uh, The Disease of More, that when you win once, that's great. You win again, people want more and more. They want more adulation. They want more credit. They want more money. So there started to be factions within that locker room, even within the coaching ranks of here's the triangle guys over here. Here's the guys who think it should be more about defense here. So there were a lot of fingers being pointed in that locker room, and there are to this day about who the main sources were for the material that was contained in that book. I think one of the strengths of this film is the interviews that you have with Michael Jordan himself, and they're multiple and they're in depth. And I think that when he's talking about basketball, it's one thing we've kind of heard it before, but when he's talking about the, the issues that he discusses in five and six and specifically sort of the gambling and the pressure from the media, he really opens up and speaks in a way that I've never heard him speak like before what was it like doing those interviews and how did you garner the relationship with him to get him to open up that way well we had that was may of 19 um and i met him in september of 17 so i had known him i mean we don't we don't communicate on a regular basis but at least he had met me enough times that that he he knew uh and he had seen rough cuts at that point too so he saw where the series was going Mm. um and he had already seen my outline. He already had met me and he knew what I was trying to say with the doc and what I wasn't trying to say with the doc. I, I believe for that interview, the first one was, was June of 18. And then the second one, I remember when he left that, that June 18 interview, I said, all right, we'll talk in, in like September or October. And it was like, okay, yeah. If you told me that we weren't going to get another interview until May of 2019, um, I would have dropped to my knees at that point because we had to edit this thing. We had 10 episodes <laughs> to edit and we needed material from him. And I only had material to edit about three or four episodes. So we, by, by the time mid 19 came around, we had black holes all throughout the episodes that we had pseudo finished, say one through six, beginning with seven uh, at that point, because we didn't have material from Michael on uh, the first championship. And, and that occurs in episode four. We didn't have material from Michael on the shrug game. So many things that we had not talked to him about yet. So as of January 1st, 2020, we did not have any episodes completed, locked, wow. picture locked. Um, so this year has just been kind of a, a, a firestorm in that regard. But to answer your question, as far as some of the more sensitive topics we, we discussed, he brought a lot of those things up himself organically through the conversation we had in that first interview in the blue shirt. 
Um, so Republicans buy sneakers too. That came up just as, as we were talking about, uh, how he's been misportrayed in the media and how he's misperceived by some people. The, the second interview was very surgical. I went in there with things that I knew I had to get and he only had an hour and a half that day. I think it was May mm. 6th of 2019. Not much time. That's not a lot of time to get mm. the amount of stuff that we needed. So I was cutting him off during that interview saying, you told the story already. <laughs> I got to go. Like, like, I'm sorry, you're the goat, you're whatever, but I'm in charge here and I got to go. So shut up. We're talking about this. Um, and, and also I had sent him, uh, as I always did, the topics, not the questions themselves, but the topics just so he could kind of familiarize himself and remember the 93 finals, like how many, you know, I'm sure he knows how many games there were. Um, but just little stats and things like that to jog his memory. And the first thing he said to me that day, um, other than the fact that he couldn't have a cigar on set because his mom got mad at him. And he said, uh, he said, I can't have a cigar today because, because my mom got mad at me because she saw me. Smoking a cigar. Like, Jason, I got, I got, a, I got a question. I got, I got an important question. So you get a chance to interview Michael Jordan. As a fan of this great series, I'm noticing his glass. Sometimes it's full. Sometimes mm. it's halfway. Sometimes it's low. Give me an off wax feeling of how his glass got filled up. And did you get a chance to enjoy some of his favorite beverage as well? Uh, you're not going to like either answer. The, the, the answer to the first was, I don't know, because that was our first interview with him. And, and quite frankly, I was, I was, uh, myself about interviewing <laughs> Michael Jordan for the first time for a 10 hour documentary. And I could care less. He could have plutonium in that glass and it was fine with me. The other thing that's misleading is that, all right, you, you can look at the levels of that glass. Also look at the lighting in the background. So. <laughs> Sometimes the glass is low and it's, and it's dark out. Sometimes it's, it's high with, with full ice cubes and it's, and it's broad daylight. We interviewed him around five or six at night. So it went from day to night. That first interview took three hours. He didn't get out of that chair until eight thirty, nine o'clock. So he may be talking about how intense he is in practice at five forty-five, And he may have another thought about that at eight fifteen, And we may edit those two thoughts together in the edit room. So when you see one shot, his glasses up here, it doesn't mean that, that while we went to a B roll, he chugged the thing. It took a triple shot. It just means that it's, it's <laughs> got matched up against each other. So I didn't, I certainly did not ask to, to sample what was in his beverage that would be inappropriate in any setting. Um, and frankly, I don't care what was, was in that glass because he gave us a great interview. So you have to ask him exactly what he was sipping on that night. He absolutely did. It's, it's so endearing to hear that his mother would be upset about the cigar. So he needed to not have yeah. one in the second interview. Now you told us the story of your first meeting with Michael and the drink that you ordered, but what was it like as that relationship developed? What was it like the second time you ever met Michael? So the second interview we did with him uh, was was 11 months after the first interview. Mm. Um, so I certainly had time to get my questions and my topics together o- over the course of that full year. And we had things that we needed to get to because that's that, that red shirt interview is the interview that you see in large part in these episodes five and six. And we were editing those at the time last summer. So we needed this material from him. Um, and I had sent him the topics that we were going to be discussing. And the first thing he said to me when he came in was, um, I know you sent the topics. I didn't look at him. You can ask me whatever you want. I'm going to give you an honest answer. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Yes. Which is way better than him saying, I looked them over and let's go over this. Don't ask me about this. Don't ask me about this. I mean, you, you, you saw the clip in, in 92 in the dream team when he says, all right, no Isaiah Thomas questions. Um, and now it's come full circle because here's a guy saying, I don't even know what you're going to ask me, but go ahead. I'm going to give you an honest answer. So I truly think that he was an open book and we could have asked him anything we wanted at that point. And one of the things you did ask him that was really fascinating. I would just remember this when it happened. You're in the playoffs. You're the best player in the world. You and your father, after a loss, decide to go to Atlantic City. Win, lose, or draw. You say you returned at 1230. The media say you return at 2.30. Either way, it's a big deal. What really happened here? Well, um, I, I got the sense he was eager to talk about uh, gambling and, and the allegations and the reputation that he has. Um, being on the inside of it, Michael's worth almost $2 billion at this point. I think he's mm. $1.9 billion is mm. what Forbes or whoever ranks those things has him at. There is no amount of money that he's going to be able to gamble with someone else unless he's calling up Bill Gates and, and Bill's giving him three and a half on, on the <laughs> Orlando San Antonio game that day. It's not going to happen. Uh, and that ain't even including the team. He can sell that mm-hmm. yeah. for, I mean, over a bill just itself. He's doing fine. And, and so he's not gambling at this stage of his life, nor do I believe he was gambling at any stage of his life for financial gain. He's gambling because he loves games, loves it. The second time mm-hmm. that I ever met him um, was at that same hotel where I first met him. And I got a call. This is the day of the Masters, in, the Masters um, final round in 2018. So it was the day of the Jordan brand classic, which was being played at Barclays in Jersey that day. And I got a phone call, come up and, and uh, hang out with MJ and then go to the game with him. And you guys can spend some time in in the suite watching the game and and watching golf. Dope. Dope. So I checked my schedule and it worked out and I, and I, and I had, of course it did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We get into the SUV. We, we had a beer in the lobby of the hotel. We were just talking about golf and, and his core. He was building his course at that time. And, and I'm a big golf fan. And we were talking about who we, who we liked that day. We're getting into the SUV. We, we close the door and we pull away and we're in Midtown Manhattan and we're going to, to, um, Brooklyn to Barclays Center. And he said, and he knows that, that these are sensitive topics. He doesn't know me yet, but these certainly, if you're doing a documentary, something like gambling is something that's going to be a sensitive topic. We close the door, we pull away. He says, I bet you we see 10 pairs of Jordans from here to the arena. (laughs) There wasn't a million on the line. There wasn't a thousand on the line. There wasn't a dollar on the line. There was no money on the line, but he's got a half hour where he's in a confined space. He wants to play a game. Mm. That's what he wants to do. And he wants to win the game. So I said, all right, you're on. And I'm thinking we're in Midtown. All I got to do is make it to the FDR. If I can make it, we're we're going down 57th Street. Just go straight down 57th or 59th and don't see 10 pairs of Jordans that we both agree are definitely Jordans. You get to the FDR, you're not going to see any pedestrians. And then we get off the, the bridge. No one's on the bridge with Jordans on. We go right to the arena and we're good. So we saw like three by the time we get to the FDR. We drive down the, F- the the highway all the way. It takes us a while to get into Brooklyn, in and around Brooklyn. When we start to get close to the arena, 
It's the Jordan brand classic. <laughs> so anyone attending that game has Jordans on. And we're going, he's going four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Da, 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 da. I said, well, that's not fair. We're, we're at the Jordan brand classic. And he just turns and winks at me. He knew he was going to win before he started that. That's what it's about with him. It's not about, it's like Will Produce it. It's like, I got your money in my pocket. He's now, he won that game over me. He doesn't even know who I, he doesn't know my name probably, at point, but, but all he wants to do is win that game. So the calculus in his head, he sat there, I'm sure thought on some level, there's going to be a lot of people wearing Jordans at this thing. I wonder how many people are wearing Jordans on the sidewalk. Not many, but there's going to be way more there. Hey, let's play a game that I know I'm going to win with this kid in this car right now. That was such a glimpse into his personality and, and, and into what you watch the gambling footage in this thing. They're pitching pennies for a $20 bill. It's hilarious to me that he set the bar at 10 when he was going to the Jordan brand classic. It's not even competitive, but he still wants to just win. What other indications do you get from his competitiveness sort of like off the court in his regular life? Well, again, that was for no money at all. And, and, you know, I can't afford what, what pro golfers can afford, but, but, uh, ask any pro golfer whose home is at or near Jupiter. Um, and they know that Michael will play them for whatever they want to play for. It's actually a good prep for them in, in some of these tournaments. We, we, um, we're going to have, we're going to, we were going to try to have, uh, Fowler and Justin Thomas and those guys on this to talk about that very thing. But we, we decided, uh, as we got into this, that we were going to keep it within the 98 window and no stories about 98 will come out afterwards. But I was down in Jupiter and got told by a caddy who was caddying for them at the time. Michael's playing with Keegan Bradley, um, who's also a member at Bears Club and, and they golf together frequently. And Keegan's got him, uh, after 16 holes, Keegan's got him by like $1,400. So again, it was good to hear that like, all right, it's not, it's not 60,000 or some crazy. It's 1400 yeah. bucks. These guys are both rich. They can handle that kind of money, but Michael's down a lot. So Keegan's talking trash to him as they're approaching the, the 17th tee. And he says, I'm going to take your $1,400 and I'm going to take my boys out to your boy's restaurant tonight. And I'm going to get wine and steaks from my friends at your boy. He's talking about Tiger, <laughs> Tiger's restaurant. And Michael's fuming. So he says, all right, we'll go double or nothing on the final two holes. No strokes. We're playing straight up. No strokes. Mm. 17 and 18. Keegan Bradley goes par, par. Michael goes birdie par. Shakes his hand and says, enjoy Taco Bell. <laughs> well i mean there there are these sort of like endearing fun stories about michael jordan's competitiveness but as we saw in this episode like his gambling become a ser- became a serious issue at one point that he felt like he needed to address with his friend ahmad rashad while wearing sunglasses like and again this episode does encapsulate the pressure that was put on him and and sort of sets up what we all know happens next after this championship. Where do you think Michael's head was at during this exact time during these playoffs? Well, he had known um, that he wanted to leave or take a break. If you go back to Roy Firestone used to have up close that show in the eighties and Michael, there's a piece of footage that we didn't put in the doc, but Michael says even then, when he's a, uh, when he's going to be a senior at UNC, he's just about to announce um, that he's going pro. He says that he turn he plans on uh, being a pro golfer when he's 30 years old. 
So he always had envisioned wow. that he was going to leave at some point and try and do something else. Now, who knew if he, if he knew he was going to dominate the way that he did by 1993. But as Mark Vansell said, he pulled him aside during the Dream Team practices that summer and said, I'm going to shock the world. I would do it now, except I had to play for the Dream Team and win this gold medal. And then I want to get three in a row because those other guys, Magic, Larry, and Isaiah, had not done that yet. So he wanted to win that little battle because, as we know, everything is about winning and everything is about, you know, taking on the best people and beating them at their own game. So the writing was on the wall. Um, he, he was mentally and physically exhausted. You could see that, that I, think it was, uh, I think it was BJ or John Paxson who said that there was more relief than joy mm-hmm. that they saw with him. And then um, – as we'll see in the next episode, uh, the events that happened, the tragedy with his father, puts it over the top. I think that's a great transition for us to ask you. Give us something. Give us a spoiler. Give us a tease. Tell us what we will get next Sunday night with yes. episodes seven yes. and eight. Give it yes. to us. Give it to us. I think that this is where the series takes off. This, this is where um, these are the episodes that, that I think I'm the most proud of, and I think that I speak for my team when I say that. This is where we, we – you want the raw stuff from Michael. You want to see the stuff that these cameras got that he was reluctant to show. Um, you want to hear what these teammates are talking about, how intense he could be and, and how monomaniacally obsessed he was with winning, even in just a, a practice. This is the episode that you want to see if you want to see that and you want to see him explain himself and, and why he felt he had to do that. You're also going to see him try to hit a curveball as well. And you're also going to hear maybe, maybe uh, a, uh, maybe a, a song that we all know from our, from my high school days by a certain dreadlocked West Coast rapper that, that went to number one on the charts but still had some gangster street cred. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things oh. in this episode that, uh, oh. that we had a lot of fun with. Um, so I, I, think that, I think this one will get people talking. And, and, and again, this is kind of a tandem episode. So what you're getting in episode seven is how Michael motivated others um, and what it was like to play with him. And what you're getting in episode eight is how Michael motivated himself and what it was like to play against him. And if you enjoyed when we handed him an iPad and it had Isaiah Thomas's face on it, just wait until we show him the glove. Wow. Ooh, great tease, Jason. Thank you so much for sharing your insight, filming this documentary and the behind-the-scenes stories. Thank you, my brother. We will brother. talk to you again live right after episode eight. Ooh, I wonder if that's going to be the one with Steve Kerr get punched in the face. <laughs> We'll find out. (laughs) Later, guys. See you next week.